The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number 69 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. My name is Sean Rapier. I am your host. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. My guest, Greg Threadgold, has led such a challenging and just incredible life as he has battled uh, depression and mental health for so much of his life. And he is so open and candid about it. And he's written a book uh, and he is a speaker and a life coach now. And this conversation is just amazing. I think probably all of us, whether we've struggled with some type of mental health issues or know someone who has mental health issues and depression uh, have touched every one of our lives, I'm sure in some way or other. I know it has mine. Now, a little bit of a warning about this conversation as these are heavy topics uh, and Greg is remarkably candid and open and just incredible. Uh, there is some pretty heavy discussion, and I would definitely recommend some discretion from children uh, regarding this episode, but it's just an amazing, incredible discussion. Excited for you to hear it. Uh, This week in my Latter-day Life, I'm going to tell you a story about a a time that I was so remarkably blessed uh, for not going to the temple. So that's all coming up. Uh, Sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And it is such a pleasure to have here in the Latter-day Live studio today my guest who is an author, he is a speaker, he is a life coach, and if the last name Threadgold sounds familiar to you, it's because you're an avid listener, or it could be because you're an avid listener to the show, and we had uh, Cindy Threadgold on the show a few months back talking about her work uh, with missionaries who pass away while uh, on their mission and inspired by her son Connor and now her husband. Greg Threadgold is here, so the other half. I'm not going to say the better half or worse half. Don't you dare. (laughs) I'll just say the other half. Greg, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's good to be here. So glad to have you on. You reached out shortly after your wife was on, and your story is just so fantastic that I knew we had to have you on to to talk to you. But before we get into kind of the things that you're most well-known for, uh, tell us a little bit about your life growing up. We got a little bit of a background when... When Cindy was on, but uh, tell us tell us a little bit about where you're from. I grew up in Ogden. Um, not a lot of people claim to be from Ogden, but <laughs> I'm brave enough to do that. Actual no Ogden. offense to those in Ogden, but I think it's great. Yeah, um, love Ogden. But uh, lived in the same house my whole life um, in Ogden. Uh, had two older brothers who were ten and eleven years older. So oh wow, ten kind of, and eleven years older than you. Yeah, I was. I was the oops as my dad referred to me. <laughs> I, I was the oops. That's not the nicest way to refer to someone. No, I... Oh. <laughs> surprise sounds a little yeah, bit better surprise, than surprise. It than was boo-boo oops. or oops. <laughs> uh, actually, and, and kind of where my, my story started um, with my father, I knew he loved me, but he hated the name Greg, and so his nicknames for me were Crummy and Dummy. Crummy and Dummy? Uh, and oops. So wow. he never called me Greg my entire life. And, um, how did that affect you? Oh, was that like, did you think he was, oh, he's just joking or did you feel like you were crummy and dummy? 
Um, definitely felt it. I think oh, that's my. where the depression started and, and the self-esteem issues started. And my brothers were more like uncles because I, by the time I was 10, they were gone. Yeah. They sure. were gone and, and on their, you know, in college. And Did you feel married. close to them growing up or was it more like a, an, an uncle? They were like, like uncles. And then it was just you, no more, no more kids. And it was just me. Wow. So it was almost like being an only child in a lot of ways. Very much. Oh, wow. Great. Very much like it. And, um, you know, my dad was a workaholic. He um, mm. worked his full-time job and then he, he was a professional referee. For so, what sport? Um, boy, he did basketball, baseball, and football. Yeah. He did softball. But he'd take off on Friday night, and they'd do a high school game in Montana or Wyoming, and then they'd do the college game on Saturday, his crew. Wow. And so he wasn't around much. He was gone a lot. He was gone all the time. Were you raised in the church? Was your family Latter-day Saint family? Um, on paper. Yeah. My mom and dad were. Um, and then... Uh, you know, I the only time I could spend with my dad was on Sundays, and so that was the golf or tennis. We'd spend. We wouldn't play tennis together, but I'd play with my friend, and he'd play with his buddy. And but uh, my brother got home from his mission when I was about eleven, and gave me kind of a kick in the behind, and said, "You need to get to church, future yeah. deacon." And so I did, and I told my dad I wasn't going to be able to go with him anymore on Sunday, and he didn't come out and say it, but he kind of gave me this look like. Okay, we're done. Mm. And then when I got ready to go on a mission, he we sat on the back stairs of Arctic Circle in Ogden for two hours, and he tried to give me offer me everything in the world not to go. He really did not want you to go on a mission. Was no. he was he opposed to your brother going too, or just you? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, he, I had one brother that went and one didn't, and so the one that didn't go was his favorite. And, yeah, he, my brother had wanted to go to BYU, and Dad spent the same amount of time talking him out of going to BYU. Was your dad just really adversarial toward the church, generally, or yes. was it just missions and BYU? Oh, no, it was the church. I think it was the church. He, he grew up, my grandparents were amazing people. Yeah. But they really forced their kids to go to church. Oh, right. And didn't give them any leniency. Um, and... As soon as a couple of years after they all got out, my parents were married in the temple. Yeah. Um, but within about four or five years of all three of those kids getting out of the house, they were immediately inactive. All of them. All of them. I've I've heard this before that there's there's kind of an every other generation thing. Mm-hmm. The my parents forced me to go to church, so I'm not going to, and I don't want you to go to church. Yeah. And then the next generation becomes my parents didn't have me go to church, so I'm going to force you and. Yeah, it can become and, a thing. And my grandparents would visit every; they'd visit all their kids every Sunday, and I knew I was going to get a personal priesthood interview with my grandfather, and wow. it was going to be really strict. So your grandfather was still really bringing the church into yeah. your life. Yeah, and he was going to. Did you go to church today? And what did you learn? And I had to have it all for him. One thing, one story I, I have to tell. I don't know if I've ever told this on a podcast. My dad um, takes credit for starting World War II. Um, what? <laughs> it was his fault. He uh, he was fi- he was about fifteen years old, fifteen or sixteen, and he woke up one Sunday morning. He said, "I'm not going to church." He said, "What's the worst thing I can do?" He said, "I'm going to go to a movie." So he took the bus down to Ogden, got in the theater, sat there with his drink and his popcorn, and went, "Ah, oh, this is great." 
He said about 15 minutes into the movie, they turned up the lights and said the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. And he said, I go to one movie on a Sunday and the whole <laughs> world goes to war. That is amazing. Yeah, so he's, he's told that story a few thousand times. Oh, that and is actually... And actually, 9-11 happened on my dad's birthday. And when I called him to wish him happy birthday, he said, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> so your dad is known for major events. He's known for big, big-time events happening. So but, one of the themes we're going to get into, and the, maybe the theme you're most well-known for, correct me if I'm wrong, but is, is kind of your battle with depression and, and how you've been able to successfully battle that. I would never want to say overcome... Uh, from what I know of of depression, uh, to completely say it's behind me, I'm assuming it's a, a constant battle, mm-hmm. if that's fair to say. But um, but when you were younger, sorry, I'm going to adjust the camera a little bit sure. here. Um, when you were younger, did uh, did you start to notice the signs of depression, or do you can you look back and see it then, or had it not manifested at all yet? Um, yeah, I can I can tell you when it started. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, again, a little bit growing up with, with again, no relationship with, with my father um, and my mother being super overprotective. That's got to be especially hard because I have lots of friends who don't have relationships with their fathers, but it's because their fathers physically weren't there. Yeah. Your father was physically there. Oh, he was there. My parents were he married 62, 62 years. Just married. wasn't there. He wasn't there. Yeah. No. Um. So I was seeking uh, Mel in my life. Yeah, validation. Unfortunately, sure. the only person that paid attention to me was one of the friends and neighbors who was a good friend of my brother's mm. who molested me. Oh. Um, starting at age seven. Um, he was about 10 years older than I was. And he molested me and tortured me until I was about 12. Um, probably... I don't know, probably a couple thousand times. I don't know. It was almost every day. Because oh. my mom worked, so I was a latchkey kid. And as I got to 10 and 11, I'd come home from school, and that was what happened. But he was paying attention to me. And so psychologically, you don't know what to do. You're a little kid. Um, and so that was part of it. And as I got into junior high and it finally stopped, and I got into junior high and high school, I just had this terrible low self-esteem. Oh, I couldn't be happy. Yeah. But it didn't have a name. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. I didn't know what it was. You know, I I went on my mission with terrible anxiety. Um, I remember losing about 40 pounds in the first four months of my mission. Hmm. I was in the United States. So Where'd you go? I went to Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. Mission. And I was so stressed out that if I didn't baptize every single person I met, I was going to go, you know where? I wasn't going to make it to heaven. Yeah. And I was so stressed until about halfway through my mission where I finally got a district leader that said, you haven't had fun for the last year. Let's have some fun. Work hard, (laughs) play hard. I hadn't played. And so the second half of my mission was fun. Still dealing with the depression and the – where I think today – knowing that I probably wouldn't have been able to go. Yeah. What, um, going back to the young man who molested you, how long did it take for you to finally reconcile that whole thing to let go of the, I mean, my understanding and and I don't know very much about, uh, and fortunately I've been very blessed to not have to know very much 
about molestation, but my understanding or what I what I do know of it is that the confusion is one of the biggest parts of it. It's the, you know, did I cause it? Did I was I did I play a role in it? Did I make him think that this was okay? It was it okay? What does it say about me? What does it say about him? All these different disparate feelings. When were you able to kind of face that and process that? Five years ago. Five years ago. So you carried that. Took 45 years. You carried that weight that many years. Mm -hmm. Oh, Greg. And part of dealing with that was was, uh, getting my miracle to beat the depression and the mental illness and the anxiety. Yeah, which we're going to definitely talk about quite a bit. That helped. Yeah. And um, it really hasn't been an issue since. I think I was able to, his father later committed suicide. Mm. And I think his father probably molested him. I don't know that for sure. Yeah, but I mean, but it's, there was something going there on. There was something going on. And for it to last for that long, my goodness, Greg. I mean, I can't even imagine that kind of pain. That is hor- yeah. I mean, that's horrifying to me. That uh, I, I think a lot of those years it was blocked out. Yeah. It was... You just kind of shut down. It's kind of like shut down. And I went through a lot of therapists with my anxiety. And with a lot of them, that's all they wanted to talk about. Mm. I'm like, no, I want to talk about how to plan next month, next year. Yeah. But they just want to talk about when I was seven. I'm yeah, like, it's kind of hard. And the scary thing is is uh, no, I don't know about I know about me I can I could describe the room I could describe what he was wearing most of the time I could tell you the smell of the room I could tell you where everything was the colors mm. of the paint colors of the carpet I could tell wow. you everything mm. um because it happens so much and how horrifying that. Greg this is like this is so well it, it I mean when when you talk about your relationship with your father and you talk about uh, the molestation, what happened with this this other person on your street, you know, and then suddenly you're dealing with issues of depression. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, this is not like the shocking outcome. No, it's pretty much the next thing. Now, you, you've spent a lot of time studying depression. You know mm-hmm. a lot about it. There is a nurture component, which was what we're talking about. There's your relationship with your father, there's what happened, the trauma when you were younger. And then there's also the nature part of it where DNA, there are people who are maybe more predisposed to depression, Mm -hmm. which we have, uh, you know, in my own family, we have some nice heavy hits of depression and and bipolar that have run through my family, uh, through our DNA. Um, Do you know, I mean, is there a history of depression in your family? Um, my, uh, mother's father, I believe he, he was an alcoholic, Mm. which Um, oftentimes is tied to depression. He lived separately from the family. Yeah. Um, he, I know my mom would tell me that my grandmother would have to lock them in the room at night because he would walk around with a gun and he was my goodness. Yeah. Um, I never met him. He died just a few months before I was born. It's a lot of heavy stuff to bear. Yeah. So, I know. Yeah. So, there's something there. there. I think there is in almost every fa- Like The more I talk to people, you know, the more I see that, that mental health... I'm going to be really broad here. That mental health issues. Mm-hmm. If I can just be broad. I don't see very many families that escape it, you know, for one reason or another. That they're, that they're 
there are most of my friends, someone in their family is affected by some type of mental health struggle. Yeah, and, and the research I've done, you know, they talk about everybody in their life is going to go through some time of a depressed period. Of course. Um, I agree. Could be for a week, could be for a couple months, could be for uh, 40 years, like I did. Yeah. Um, you know, that people are like, how long have you been depressed? I say, approximately 16,485 days in a row. <laughs> and that's from my seventh birthday to my 52nd birthday. Wow. Um, well, let, let's get, let's, let's catch up a little bit. You get home from your mission and we know at some point, spoiler alert, if you listen to Cindy's episode, you meet Cindy, you I guys get Cindy. married. Yeah. I, um, I met Cindy, um, actually went back, felt a strong prompting. This didn't help with my father. Um, so, and he told me if I left on my mission, when we were talking, if you go on your mission, our relationship's done, which oh. wasn't much of a relationship anyway. Oh, Didn't go great. as far to say as you're not my son, but that's how I was treated the rest of the time. Um, you're going to go. That's the stupidest thing you could ever do. Why would you waste all that time? And anyway, um, so I ended up feeling the spirit when I was home in college. Good job. Felt spirit. You need to go to Ohio now. I'm like, no, I was just there on my mission a year ago. And it said, no, you need to go now. So I went um, to the ward I used to be in. Yeah. I was actually a missionary in Cindy's ward. Had <laughs> yeah, Thanksgiving dinner at her house. That's so amazing. Um, walked into church. Um, the bishop kind of looked up. Is that all their thread gold? And uh, I sat down next to the ward mission leader that was there when I was there. And I looked around and I looked over and saw Cindy's family. And I said, oh, there's the Smiths. I said, oh, there's grandma, there's mom, there's her brother, there's her sister. I said, who's that? They said, that's Cindy. I said, I don't know Cindy. They said, oh, that's that's the missionary. Oh, she was on her mission when I was on my mission. Right. Yeah, I saw pictures of her. She saw pictures of me. I looked straight at him. I said, that's the girl I'm going to marry. Wow. And he said, have you two ever met? And I went, no. Wow. Because I'm not super spiritual, so I need I needed the angels to be pointing arrows down at this one going, <laughs> this one, don't mess this up. You just drove across country. Don't yeah. mess this up. And by the time we got together, um, we dated four days and got engaged. Four days and got engaged. And got married six months later and been married 34 years. That is so awesome. I love that story. I used to tell my kids before they were married, you do that, I'll kill you. But I'm the same way. I got married. We got married six months, less than six months after we met. And we've been married 24 years. But I tell my kids the same thing. Yeah. Do not do it. So I'd love to hear the BYU story. Oh, we only dated a month. I'm like, what took so long? <laughs> Four days. Come on. So I don't think we've been beat yet. But So we've, we've heard a little bit of the story of your family, quite a bit of the story yeah. of your family, of your sons. And I would recommend, gosh, for our listeners, if you have not listened to Cindy Threadgold's episode, please go back. And I don't want to double up on too much right. of it because I want to stay focused no. a little bit on you and... And your depression and then your book and the coaching that you do, because I'm so fascinated by it. I think it's just such an awesome message. Talk to us a little bit about how your depression affected kind of your marriage. Let's say from from the time you got married up until the time you found your miracle. What are some of the what are some of the things I'm sure I I know personally, like I said, I think like you said, everybody has times of depression. I will say, you know, just opening up and being a little bit vulnerable. 
I believe the midlife crisis is a very real thing, being 46 <laughs> years old, okay. where you're kind of crossing some things off your list you thought you were going to do in your life, and kind of, yeah, this weird moment where it's like, wait a minute, my life's actually happening. I think I've hit some of that if, a little bit, but I haven't had what I would clinically, I would not consider myself someone who struggles with depression. So for our listeners who maybe don't know about it, two things I'd love to know. One is if you could kind of describe to the best that you can what depression is like. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know that there's a way to put that into words, but I would love to hear it. And then secondly, kind of how it affected you as a father, your marriage, your career, all these other things. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have tried. There's a lot of quotes out there trying to describe depression. The best one I've found is imagine you're in a pool drowning and everybody around you is just going on with their lives and nobody sees you. Oh, that makes me want to cry. That's the best one I've seen or heard. Um, that's how you feel. Everybody is just going on with their lives and they have no idea what you're going through. Do you feel like screaming? Just like, hey, everyone, do you not see me drowning? You're too embarrassed. Really? Again, if, you're, if your arm's broken, Sean, everybody comes over right, it's on your cast. If your head's broken, they go the other way. I'm actually finishing up a new um, fireside that, I'm, that I do for different wards and stakes. And, and I deal with bishops, and they send people to me for life coaching that are dealing with depression. And I, I run this by the bishops because I said, is this too strong? And I run the title by them, and they go, no, it's perfect. I said the modern-day depression, the modern-day leprosy. Depression, the modern-day leprosy. Because you're treated like a leper. Yeah. You're ignored. People turn and go the other way. This is at church. People go yeah. and turn the other way. They don't talk to you. They don't know what to say. So let's just ignore him. And he's not right in the head. So you're treated like a leper. And you go to church oh. and you feel like a leper. You feel like a leper. And instead of, John, by the way, gave us a great talk, the best three hours of the week, it's the worst three hours of the week. Yeah. It's the worst three hours of the week. Do you think it's that, how much of it is your perception being in the throes of depression? And how much of it is real and people don't know what to say and they... They treat you like a leper. How, mu how much of it is, how much do you think of it is, I've had times personally where, where I've thought, you know, we call it the committee in our heads or whatever, where the committee is telling me, hey, you don't belong here, whatever. And then later I've been able to step out and go, yeah, that was probably more me than them. Other times I know I've seen people struggling with things that I have turned the other way because I didn't know what to say. Yeah. Um, I'd say it's 25% perception. And seventy-five percent. Yeah, I believe it's real. I know it's real. It's, I know it's for absolutely a fact. Real. It's, it's absolutely um, real. I've had one person, um, let's just say church families, my whole life. Yeah. I've had one person, one friend, come to me my entire life and say, "Greg, I I want to be your friend, and I want to be there and help you, but I don't know how to talk to you. You always you look angry." You look like you're just going to explode. Hmm. I don't know what, to, what can I do? How can I talk to you? I've had one person ask me, how can I do that? How did that make you feel when you got asked that? It made me feel amazing. And he See, and I have a bond, and that was probably 20 years ago he asked me that. We have a bond today that we're still dear friends. 
My, I, I often talk about when my brother passed away, my best friend, uh, one of my best friends, Jason, uh, who had been a business partner of mine, he showed up the day my brother passed away. He showed up with a case of Diet Coke, uh, a plant and a watermelon. And he said, I have no idea what to do, but I needed to do something. Yeah. Still brings tears to my eyes. He's still one of my closest friends. And I love that he acknowledged that. He said, I don't know. I don't know. I think we don't know. I don't know how to deal with people no. in the throes of depression. But the fact that he went and that you meant enough to him, that he showed enough love to you to ask you, how do I be your friend? How do I help you? How yeah. do I serve you? How do I talk to you? And I think what I had to get over, and I did after I made the changes and, and pretty much hadn't didn't have to deal with the depression all the time or sometimes not at all for long periods of time, was they didn't know what to say. Because I'd be so angry at them. Really? Yeah. You're going to walk away from me? Because you're screaming out for help. You're just not verbally doing it. Mm. You are sitting there, the loneliest person, feeling like a leper. And I've seen good people. I've seen my high priest group leadership walk down the hall and turn around and go the other way. And that wasn't my perception. That They did that. Wow. And, and I it's believe like, it. I've had bishops get so frustrated with me that they yelled at me in their office. And I look at my wife and go, why is he yelling at you? It's because he doesn't know what to do, honey. He's so frustrated and he wants to help you. I said, why is he yelling at me? I'm depressed. But even the little things, I was the few times as an adult that I've planned suicide. And I've had four attempts in my life. Wow. I had a couple of plans. I had four, a couple of plans. Four attempts at suicide and yeah. two plans. Yeah. Uh, my wife, actually, and my kids found me once, ready to slip my wrists in Arizona. Um, I had one where I had, I had made a plan to kill myself after church. Um, I was going to meet a guy I'd met, KSL or whatever, to buy a gun or some website to buy a gun, and I was going to kill myself. And... Every time that's happened, God has sent somebody in my life mm. before it happened to make me stop. And all it was is I'd sit out in the foyer because I didn't want to be around everybody. And a girl came in in our ward that I've known since she was little. She was about 12. And she said, hi, Brother Threadgold. How are you today? Mm. And she came up and she said, can I give you a hug? She's never done that. On that day. On that day, and it told me that God did care, and he was there. Yeah. And I actually went that night to her parents, and I said, she saved my life. And all she did was say hi <laughs> and give me a hug. Uh, Another time it was, and the mind can, you know, yeah. I'd baptized, or I'd promised my home teaching family I was going to go to their son's baptism. And then two hours later, I was going to go kill myself. But I'd made a promise, and dang it, I was going to go. And this will hit home with you. A new guy in our ward that had been put in the bishopric came to me after. And I didn't know him very good. He'd only been there a couple months. He was in the bishopric. And he said, Brother Stregold, I just want to know you. I was at the temple this morning, and I walked all the way out to my car, and the Spirit said to go put your name on the temple roll. So I walked back in and put your name on the temple roll. I just wanted you to know that. Mm. His name was Blake Repair. A relative of yours. Yeah. He's Blake's now my stake president. 
Blake's an amazing man. Amazing. Yeah. And that was another time it got saved. But during the marriage, we didn't know what it was. I would just explode in anger, not physical or not verbal, but I would just, and I was depressed and the kids didn't know which dad was coming home from work. Did you have extremes or were you constant? Like, did you have days where you were the happy, let's go out to dinner, everything's wonderful, and then... Kind of, I, I know some people who've been through depression who do the manic and then the, mm-hmm. you know, f- three or four days they're yeah. on top of the world and three or four days they can't get out of bed. I, I know other people with depression yeah. who it's constant. They're just kind of always Mine upset. was was constant, but I was on, for years, I was on about a nine-week cycle after I started to track it with, with therapists. Okay. Where I'd just be depressed and that's where I was. And I, I wouldn't have highs and lows. I just have all lows. And then I would go great i'd be on top of the world yeah for about three days just living loving it just doing things writing reading happy laughing and then i would crash for a week and it would just be a living you know what yeah where i just wanted to die were were you able to to maintain um work during all this i was um i could hold it together just long enough yeah i've heard that before too i could you know i could fake it really good at work kind of create a toolkit to be able to work for a while and then boom the real you yeah is at home because i'm exhausted because you you've held it together it's like working or, 24 or, hours and eight yeah or i could teach a really great gospel doctrine lesson and nobody nobody in our ward had a clue any of our wards what i was suffering from because we kept it a secret because mm. that's what you do you don't let anybody know because it's leprosy. Because it's leprosy. You pull down your sleeves. You yeah. don't want anybody to no, see the skin. Nobody to know. Wow. But then it would take, to do that 40-minute lesson, I would exert probably four days of energy. And so yeah. three hours later, I'm curled up in a ball on my bed in the dark, screaming. Hmm. And people go, wow. And so when we finally came out on a fifth Sunday and shared my story and Cindy talked about what it's like to be married with somebody with depression. Yeah. Um, people were shocked. You? I'm like, yeah, you had no idea. I know a, a lot of people with depression talk about how they feel like they're almost in a Halloween costume when they're at church or when they're at other place, they're putting on such this show, Oh yeah. you know, it's putting on, it's like an actor putting on a play. Hey, I'm Greg Threadgold, the, Awesome father, husband, gospel doctrine teacher, the career professional, all these things. Yeah. And deep down, they're going, no, I am I want to be crawled up in a corner in a ball. I don't want to be alive. Yeah. Did you feel like there was a duplicity there? One of the greatest talents that people that have depression suffer from is they're really good liars. Yeah. We learned to lie really good. I How are you doing, Brother Freckled? I am amazing. Man, if I was any better, I'd have to be twins. <laughs> and they go, oh, great. And I could just fake it. And I was just going inside, please help me. Please give me a hug. Please, I, I want to die. I want it to go away. Um, and I've been able to see that in a lot of my clients that I work with that suffer from it. They've spent their life trying so hard. Yeah. And I can even see it, and I'll lean over to Cindy, and I go, man, they're dealing with it because they're trying so hard. Did Cindy ever like confront you did, did was it ever a hey we we need to talk we need to address this um you know before i asked her to marry me i tried to scare her away 
I said, don't marry me. You don't, wow. you don't want this baggage. I told her everything mm. I was dealing with. I said, please. And she's not. She actually, we talked. She, she, Cindy would get to the point where she would remind me, you know what? Uh, me and the boys are going through hell too. This isn't all just about you. Sorry if I'm not supposed to swear. No, it's, but that's it is what hell. she'd say. No, by the way, depression. Everything I've heard, hell might be the most apt word. So that's yeah. okay. And she'd go, "This isn't all about you. We're going through it too." Did that? And so help? she put me in my place. Did that help or did it hurt? Did it make you she, feel worse about coming yourself? from her? It helped. Yeah, okay, I could see She's that. Like you got to understand what we're going through. Yeah, I'm, that makes sense. And she actually had a, a high councilman asked her one day. Why do you stay? Why don't you just... Because I'd tell her. I said, honey, if you want to pack the kids and leave, I'm never going to hate you a minute for it. I'll understand. If you just want to go. I mean, hundreds of times I told her that. Greg, the pain I hear from you, I just... I mean, wow. And here's her answer. And and the listeners need to really hear this if they're in this situation. And every situation is different. So I'm just speaking about our situation. She looked at him and she said... Well, if I did that, what does that say about me? Mm. And he's not always going to be this way. He's going to get resurrected and it's going to go away. She said he's either going to get fixed in this life or the next. But what does that say about me if I walk away? Yeah. And so... Your wife is amazing. I mean, just amazing. And you're amazing, Greg. And I, I think it's important to note here that there are times where a spouse does need to leave. Yeah, that's right. And, and there are I, people with mental health issues where it is not healthy for them to stay and it's not healthy for the kids. So I want to make sure to recognize in your specific situation that was right. Yeah, and that's why and I, I said I'm talking about my now. situation. Yes, but there but no one should take that as a oh I should never leave. No. There are times where there is they need to is leave. the right thing they need to leave. You had something where like as if you're not dealing with enough and again, I don't know that we need to go into tons of detail on this. Because, again, go back to Cindy's episode. But a few years back, um, and I, I don't remember how long it's been now, but you lost your son, Connor. And yeah. I have cried more tears than you know about <laughs> that situation. Um, wh- where were you in the process of getting healthy when, when uh, you lost Connor? Um, when Connor passed, and he passed on his mission in Taiwan, he and his companion... It's been four and a half years ago. Yeah. Um, doesn't seem like that, but it's been four and a half years ago. I was in the best place I'd been in my entire life mm. when it happened. Do you look back at that now and see God prepping you oh, yeah. for this then? Oh, yeah. Um, it, it was like, and for a long time, I, why is this taking so long? I'm, I've done, I did 45 different medications over the years. I had 18 therapists. I read every book. I took every test, every assessment they wanted me to do. You were working. I was a straight-A student. I wanted to beat this. I was doing everything I could. And I'm like, why is this taking so long? It's been 10 years. It's been 20. It's been 40 years. And I wasn't seeing his hand Mm. in it. But then suddenly people came into my life. Yeah, and I was, and at that point, I was about as bad as I'd ever been. Mm. I was just, I give up. I'm done. 
And I, the bishop begged me one more time to go to the therapist. And I said, it's not going to do any good, but sure. Because I can play the game and I can tell them my story and I can lie and I can, I know just you what they want to hear. I know how to yeah. play the game. Right. I know how to play the game. I'd been in four mental institutions. Really? Yeah, I'd been in four mental institutions mm. over the years because, and most of those times uh, I was taken there against my will by home teachers or by somebody in the bishopric that would pick me up and put me in their truck and take me because wow. I was uh, a danger to myself and it was I was out of control. I was mm. because my anxiety grew into paranoia. Yeah. And so the the point that I got better, I was paranoid. My, holding a job was almost impossible. I my got my dream job. I'd worked my whole career to get this job. Had the second biggest office in the company and running the customer service for this big conglomerate company and I went and I called my wife and I said, either I quit and go to the emergency or go to the psychiatric unit right now or I'm going to kill myself. And I walked away and just walked away from it. I'd never quit a job in my life. Wow. And I just said, I'd been in the bathroom for a week crying, trying to, okay, I can go back out for 10 more minutes. Every discussion was about me. Every meeting was about me. They were talking about me. I was so paranoid. I couldn't hardly go outside. It's all totally real to you. I mean, oh, it's, it's, it's real. Every helicopter in the sky was following me. Every cop car is following me. Every conversation is about me. Yeah. I was just totally paranoid. It was out of control. Uh, one therapist said it was borderline schizophrenia. And yet you recognized that you needed help. Oh, yeah. That's a, that to me is amazing. I know someone who went, we were very close to someone who went through something similar, but he could not see the forest for the trees. It was that we were all wrong. He didn't yeah. need help. We all needed help. And yeah. then he actually told me that I had demons inside me that were speaking. You're the, you're the sick one. Yeah, you're yeah. the one who's sick. <laughs> but you were able, what a tender mercy. No. Can I just tell you, what a tender mercy of God that you saw that you needed the help. That's borderline yeah. miracle. I, I, people, a lot of the clients I work with, I, do you really want to die or do you just want the pain to stop? Yeah, I just want the pain that to stop. That is an amazing question. We had Ganolyn Condi here on the show. She talked about her sister's suicide and her simple message is stay in your body at all costs. But I love that question because it's true. People don't want to die. They want the pain to stop. They just want it to stay away. Someone I know very close to me tried to take her own life. And later I was talking to her and she fortunately didn't. Um, she didn't succeed. She took a lot of pills and they were able to get her to the hospital on time. And I asked her, I said, so did you really want to die or were you just hoping to get help? And she said, I didn't care. She said one way or another, the pain had to end and either I was going to get the right level of help or it was going to be over and I didn't care which. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I point out to clients, I said, okay, how many days have you had where you just didn't think you were going to get through the day and you were doing it five minutes at a time? I've had thousands of them. I understand that. And they said, oh, I've had hundreds of them. I'm like, great. Did you realize you have a hundred percent success rate of getting through the hardest days in your life? <laughs> I said, that's pretty good. You have a 100% success rate. Oh, that's amazing. Of dealing with the hardest things you never thought you could deal with. Yeah. Um, so, so I, excuse me. I, no, no, go ahead. Um, so 
I went to this last appointment. The bishop yeah, asked good. me to go to, and I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. I'll go play the game. And didn't like the therapist. We just didn't click. And I have a bad attitude. I wouldn't have clicked with anybody that day. And I said, you know, I'm going to leave. And she said, no, actually, you're not. And she said, I'll be right back. And she had two guys standing at the door to the therapist. She said, you're not leaving because you're about 30 minutes from killing yourself. I said, no, it wouldn't take that long. It probably happened out in the parking lot. She said, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go till your bishop or stake president or the police come. You're not leaving, so we might as well chat. And I wasn't really happy. And she says, you know, we got to go way outside the box. You've had 18 therapists, 45 medications. You've been in four mental hospitals. And this is what came out of her mouth, Sean. I went. She said, maybe you should look into a lobotomy. And I went, what? I said, show me your diploma from school. She says, no, I'm just thinking out of the box. You got to go crazy to, to get better. And I'm like, wow. And her credibility just went out the door. And then she said, thank heavens, this person that God put in my life for a half hour. She said, I don't know much about ECT, electric convulsive therapy, shock treatment. That's what they call it. She said, but I know I've had one patient do it. I don't know how it turned out. Would you at least call this place? They do it at the University of Utah. They do it all the time. And I played the game. I said, if I promise to call her, will you let me go? And I convinced her to let me go. Yeah. Not No plan on calling the person. Right. But I did. I called, and this sweet lady up at the University of Utah spent two hours on the phone with me trying to get me to come up to at least talk to the doctor. She said, a lot of people, this is the last resort. Sure. We have a great success rate. Mm. I said, um, I said, okay, I'll come. The drive up there <laughs> was so scary because of the paranoia. Peace, the, column, the cops are following me, the helicopter's in the sky. We almost didn't get there. Cindy was driving me up there. Everybody's coming together. To Everybody's bring this here. They great come. Plan. It's here this they great come. Plot. They're coming to get me. I don't know who they are, but and they're the suggestion coming to get me. of a lobotomy doesn't help paranoia. No. And then just electrotherapy. I mean, just hearing. I, that, all I could think was I'm Frankenstein. Paranoid. I could think Frankenstein. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I getting zapped. I wouldn't be paranoid at that point. And we went out and talked to this amazing doctor and psychiatrist who does the had done it for years. Mm. And actually, we found out from my brother that my dad had had this in his really? 60s after he retired he had a stroke and he couldn't talk or do anything mm. he was numb and he went through about three or four procedures and he was like a new man wow and so the doctor found that out and he went you'll probably be a really good candidate if your dad did good and he'd actually done the procedures because we told him about when it was and he said i would have been starting out that's amazing and anyway he said I think you'd be good. And this is where we found out the 45 medications because every time he mentioned a medication, we were on it. And we had a long conversation because he said not everybody qualifies. So I said, sure, why not? And our insurance didn't pay for it, so some insurance does. But it was expensive. And I said, I don't know what else to do. But I felt right. Yeah. And we actually had to have my ward. We actually presented it to the ward council 
the bishop did with us because I wasn't going to be able to drive. I was going to be able to work. This was going to take about eight weeks. Wow. And I had to be babysat 24 hours a day during the process. So I had to have members of the high priest group come and babysit me every other day while Cindy went to work. Craig, that's amazing. So I went through, I was supposed to go through 12 sessions. Um, and people, different people in the ward would take me up there. And it's literally shock. I mean, it's literally... Literally, they put discs on your head, and it's it's very scientific. They do over 100,000 treatments a year up there, and they have great success. And it's so amazing. Um, the doctor calls me one of their poster children. <laughs> and uh, he actually ordered my book when he found out that I'd written a book. He bought it for all the patients up there and all his staff. And, and I went through seven treatments. Nothing, except a big headache. I don't remember a lot of it, yeah, because memory loss is one of the things. And to understand it, it they give you a seizure. They give you a huge seizure. They numb. They totally um, paralyze your entire body with the medicine because mm. of the amount of electricity that's going in your head. Sure. And they don't. And they put a tourniquet on your wrist, and he can feel the seizure go in your brain and come back out. And the electricity go in. That's how he tells how strong it was. Yeah. Well, I went through seven treatments, a couple a week, nothing. Mm. I went, man, this is bad. It's not going to work. The eighth treatment. Wow. I feel a little better. Really? I'm like, wow, I kind of feel a little better. And every treatment since that, and I went through them, got to the 12th one. And it was gone. Mm. I was a new guy. Rebooting your brain is what he calls it. We reboot your brain. We put new lines in your brain. Wow. And the reason I did it, because he says, you know, if we do this and it works, you'll improve. And I said, well, a little bit. He said, no. If it completely works, no, it's gone. And this was five years ago. That's five years ago. That was actually close to six. So what has the last five or six years been like compared to the first, what, 45, 50? 50, 50, 50 years, 50 years. First 50 years. Night and day. Yeah. I feel like a different person. Absolutely. Um, and, again, it's not for everybody. And sure. my book is about miracle. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your book. Um, What's because, the book called? It's called The Depression Miracle. The Depression Miracle. And it's the seven keys I found during my process to shatter the chains of anxiety, depression, and the unfulfilled life. And you, you're not stating that electrotherapy is the miracle. It's go out and find your miracle. It was my miracle that it's I've been process. searching for my whole life. That was your God, miracle. God, what did I need? It could be a yeah. medication. I've met med- people that medications are amazing. could be a therapy. I had tried 45 be... of them. Yeah. It's like I've tried everything, but I kept searching and I kept searching and I kept searching because... I'm my only motivator. Yeah. I kept sometimes we sit and go, oh, I hope God answers my prayers, and we just sit there <laughs> and we wait for someone to motivate us or make us better. And we gotta go. And we gotta do it. And the the amazing thing was there it had side effects. I had terrible memory loss. I still there's some things I can't remember. Um, you know, and that's part of it. Um I didn't know how to be happy, Sean. I haven't been happy since I was six. I didn't know what happiness was. 
All I knew was I woke up and the panic attacks were gone. I've had four panic attacks in the last six years. And I used wow. to have 65 a day. What a I had The last one I had about a couple months ago, I actually laughed. I said, <laughs> I'm having, and I don't make light of it because I've had so many. <laughs> but I said, I'm having a panic attack. This is the most ridiculous thing in the world. Wow. And I've been depressed maybe three days. And some of that was situational. Sure. Cindy came home and I said, because they told me, they said, if you start to slide backwards, come back and get yeah, more I've treatments. I've been depressed more than three days in the past five yeah. years. And I I've, have. and I've, because if you start to go backwards, they need to get you in for more treatments. Right, right. And most people have to get other treatments. My miracle, I have never been back in six years. So if you can encapsulate like a central theme in your book, I know there are a lot of steps to it and maybe there's not one central theme, but what I hear from you and I've, I've watched some of the YouTube video of you speaking and I've read uh, on your website, I haven't read your book, but I, of your message, one of the things that I get from you is don't give up. Yeah. Don't give up. It's there. The, re- the, <laughs> the miracle is there. Is that, is that, does that sound right or no? Uh, miracles happen every day. Yeah. Every day. Um, and if you don't see miracles that have happened in your life, maybe you need to get a new definition of what a miracle is hmm. Yeah, because they happen every day. And part of it, you know, the, the keys, you know, we need to, one of them is to get out and serve other people. That's not what you want to do when you're depressed. But it sure makes you feel good when you take your eyes off yourself for a little while. Why isn't that true? I go help on a service project, and Amen. it's like, wow, okay, now I'm back home, and I'm back into myself. But And it's to have patience and perseverance. And, and also, in the book, I have a list. Once I started to study people that had mental illness problems, yeah. Abraham Lincoln, Barbara Bush, Beethoven, <laughs> Michelangelo. Wow. Uh, Barbara Streisand, Charles Dickens, Donnie Osmond had a terrible anxiety disorder. Mm. Thomas Edison, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Winston Churchill, Ernest Hemingway, Jim Carrey, George Washington, Oprah Winfrey, Will Smith. It's amazing. So if you come in my office, I have pictures of a lot of those people. And they're like, what are those? I said, that's the group. (laughs) You're part of the group. You're part of the group. It's pretty cool. (sighs) And that they didn't do these things because they had mental illness. They did yeah. them in spite of it. Interesting. And they were better at it. Yeah. Um, you asked about, did I see God's plan in this whole thing? No. But once I learned how to be happy, and I learned that through another miracle of meeting my life coach, Yeah. who filled in all the blanks because I didn't know what happiness was. But you couldn't have done anything with that life coach before you were in a position. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, 10 years ago, this life coach would have meant nothing to you. No, it was the perfect timing. And so now you are now an author who has written about this. You're out paving the way. You're a speaker. You're a life coach yourself. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to to find you and connect with you? Uh, Best way is gregthreadgold.com. And it's T-H-R-E-D. Yes. G-O-L-D. No, no, no a. a in there. It's just like threading gold, but without the A. Without the A. GregThreadGold.com. GregThreadGold.com. There's, there's a lot of free resources on there. There's uh, other podcast interviews I've done. One of the biggest things I put together was a little sheet that says things, how to talk to someone who's depressed. Gosh, what that to is say, so helpful. What not to say. 
the do's and don'ts. Awesome. Instead of this, say this. Because the times I was told, well, just be happy. <laughs> it's all in your head. Well, yeah, actually, it is all in my head. That doesn't make it. And so it, brain cancer is all in your head. Yeah. Oh, it's those medications you're <laughs> you taking. Know. Why are you taking medications? Don't take oh, medications. Come on. And Everybody's an expert, right? Yeah. And the thing that... So I went through the training with the coach, and then she had an answer to prayer that said I should be a life coach. And I laughed. I was a professional photographer. I have been pretty much my whole life. And I went, no. And she said, no, I think you really should. Your story needs to be told. Yeah. And two things happened to me the night that I decided. I remember a priesthood blessing 16 years before that I'd been blessed that I would beat this. Wow. And I thought... Okay, so it's going to happen pretty soon. Five years, 10 years, 15 years. Really? And then I got a blessing right before the ETCT that said, you're going to beat this soon. And I saw everything fall into place in my life, how God had, I had to go through all this so I can work with people and say, I know exactly how you feel pretty close. Yeah. And sometimes they sit and they explain a panic attack, and I go, I know how you feel. And they're like, you're the first person that ever understood panic attacks. Mm. So I went through more certification with her to be, it, to be it. And I went home, and I told Cindy, this was in July of 2014. I said, I am happy, as happy as I'd ever been since I was six years old. Everything is so good right now. Mm. And three weeks later, Connor died. And everybody was calling the bishop worried about me because he's going to kill himself too. And if it had happened five years before that, yes, I would have killed myself the same day. I wouldn't have been able to handle his death. But I was in such a good place to handle the hardest thing I've ever. Yeah. Of and course. you hear losing a child, it brings on a pain that you can't, I didn't even know existed. I can't imagine it. I literally don't want to. No. And I can't imagine it. And But I was in such a good place, and God had prepared me for that. Mm. And my life coach called after she found out, and she said, well, your story just got bigger. What an interesting she way to look at it. She said, now you're going to help more people. Ugh. And again, with Cindy's work of reuniting with these families and helping these families and being there for other families that have lost missionaries. And then I did some speaking and some firesides, and some friend of mine... Um, says you need to write a book if you're going to be a speaker. Yeah. And his joke was nobody's going to read it, but you need <laughs> you need to have a book. And so I wrote the book, and the it came so miracle. easy. And mm. Connor came. Connor was part of that. He pushed of me. The I process finding it, writing it was was pretty easy because it was my story. And I thought, okay, now I can go back to being a photographer. And the book, its first week on Amazon, went number one in seven different countries. Mm. And it just changed, and suddenly there were book trips and radio and TV. And, and here you are. And helping other people. It's awesome. But, Greg, it's yeah. put you on such a cool, cool path. I mean, it's amazing. It really is. I, I, want, I want to close things up with two questions. Yeah. There's one that we ask all of our guests, but there's a second one that's just for you. There are people listening right now who someone in their life is struggling with depression. And there are people who are listening right now who are struggling with depression. If you had 
a 30-second message for each of them, the one golden nugget, maybe something that you could say, both to someone who loves someone struggling with depression and people with depression. Can you make it that succinct, one major message? To those suffering from depression, God's not mad at you. The universe isn't taking this out on you. This is a classroom you're going through Mm. in your life. We all have different classrooms. Change the question from why is this happening to me to what am I supposed to learn from this? Mm. The minute I did that, things changed. And I was on the road to my miracle. Your miracle's out there. You don't have to do this alone. Uh, There's a miracle. God's timing is perfect. It never happens too soon, and it never happens too late. It happens right when it's supposed to, as it did for me. To those caregivers, um, talk openly about your feelings. Um, that's hard to do sometimes. I the the shock of this book is how many caregivers have written to me and emailed me and said, for the first time I understand what their life is like. And it was written more to people dealing with depression, but it's been such a help to caregivers. Um, understand that you've been put in a position of trust, that God has put you in a position of trust to help these people. Yeah. They're in there. Mm-hmm. I know they act like they're mean and sad and given up, but they're in there, and mm. they can beat it. Mm. There are miracles out there. Pray for a miracle. I love this all. Uh, Greg, I could talk to you for the next 10 hours, but we're about out of time. We're going to close with the same question I ask all of our guests, and I'll be fascinated to hear your answer through the lens of everything we've discussed, and that is, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Um, the simple answer is, Sean, I wouldn't be here without it. I wouldn't be here without the priesthood blessings. I wouldn't be here without my name in the temple. If uh, The quick thing is, back to, if you don't know what to do with somebody suffering from depression, one of my best friends, one who took me up to my treatments, always been there for me for 20 years that I've known him. He would constantly come and remind me and see me in church. He says, you know, I go to the temple every week, and I put your name in the temple every week since the day I met you and found out you suffer from depression. Hmm. Put their name in the temple. Yeah. I do it for people. I did it the other day for Hmm. someone going through something I didn't know they were going through. It takes three minutes to call and do it. But that strength that he did that every Thursday for almost 20 years. Again, the prayers. I've asked that question of almost 70 guests now. And I've had multiple guests say, I wouldn't be here without it. And I've had multiple guests say, it's everything. You saying you wouldn't be here without it just brought a very different tone to that question. It's very real. Author of the book, The Depression Miracle, uh, check it out. It's You can go to gregthreadgold.com. Again, that's T-H-R-E-D-G-O-L-D.com. The book is The Depression Miracle. He is a father, a husband, 
a speaker, and a true survivor. Greg, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your Latter-day life with us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. My very special thanks to Greg Threadgold for coming on. What an amazing guy to be that open and candid. And I know that in some way or other, mental health issues have touched every one of our lives, whether it's a friend or a coworker or a family member or maybe ourselves. And for Greg to be so open and candid, what a blessing it is. Thank you, Greg. And thank you also to Cindy, who's such a supporter of the show. Greg's wonderful wife, who was on a few months back. What an incredible couple. And what a blessing it is to have gotten to talk to both of them. So my special, special thanks to you. Uh, This week in my Latter-day life, as Greg was talking about uh, needing angels, people who (laughs) the Lord sent into his life at the right time, uh, I was reminded of a time a few years back. I was working for a different company at the time and traveling a lot, and I was at their headquarters. And their headquarters was not very far from a temple. This was... uh, Again, a different company than where I am now, but uh, it was pretty close to a temple. And I just, you know, when you feel the need to go to the temple, you just, I really wanted to go to the temple that week. And so I had actually brought my temple clothes with me and my recommend, and and I wanted to get off work right at five o'clock and immediately go to the temple and do a session. So work ended. And, uh, but before that, earlier that day, a coworker of mine had come up to me and he said, Hey, I know you're in town. I don't have any plans tonight. Do you maybe want to go out and get some food? And this was a coworker I love. I love this guy. Good, good guy. And I said, you know, I'm actually kind of busy tonight. I kind of got something going on. And he goes, well, if that changes, you know, I'd love to love to go out to dinner and hang out. And I had known this guy for quite a while. And I said, no problem. But I was focused. I am going to the temple. And I got off work and I went to my hotel and I checked into the hotel. And when I went to check in, the person at the hotel, this was not the normal hotel I stayed at. This was a new one. And the person said, I'm sorry, we don't have a reservation for you. And I said, come on, I need to check in because I need to change so I can go to the temple. And we figured out that I had actually booked for the same hotel chain on the other side of town. Oh, so I quickly got in my car and and, uh, jammed all the way over to the new hotel, got checked in and went in to change. And put on all of my, my church clothes and everything. And as I got to the car, I'd never been to this temple before. And so I called the temple to see what time the last session was. And by this time, it was probably 6.15, something like that. And I think she said, well, the last session is at, let's say it was seven o'clock, something like that. And this was one of the newer, smaller temples. And I said, oh, great, I can still make it. And she said, wonderful, would love to have you. Do you have a reservation? I said, reservation? (laughs) For what? And she said, oh, because our temple is smaller, we actually encourage reservations. And I'm afraid we have nothing left for the last session tonight. And I said, you got to be kidding me. I I mean, I've never even heard of this. She said, you could show up, but we usually are way, way overbooked. And so you probably won't get in for a session tonight. And dejected, man, I took off my took off my shirt and everything and changed into some shorts and a t-shirt and uh, thought, well, now what? Well, I'll call my friend. (laughs) So I called my friend and we agreed to meet for dinner. And as I was driving over, I was so bugged and I was praying and I was saying, Heavenly Father, why on earth am I trying so hard to go to the temple and it's just not working out? Why? Made no sense to me. 
But I got together with my friend, and I actually ended up picking him up, and then we went out to dinner. While we were at dinner, he had recently moved. And while we were at dinner, he started telling me about how difficult it had been and how he missed his friends and family that were left behind and how lonely it is. And then the conversation felt like it took a deeper and maybe darker turn as he began to tell me that he had been dealing with uh, feeling lonely and empty by drinking. And it had started, you know, like it does, just a, a few beers here and there, whatever. And then it had become more and more and more. And that every night now he drinks himself to sleep. And how painful that is. And then we finished dinner and we went and sat in the car and I drove over to his apartment. We sat out in front of his apartment and he continued to tell me how he didn't have friends and didn't have a social life and didn't know what to do and how every night he would just drink to deal with the pain and how lonely he was. And then he turned to me and he said, Sean, I don't want to live anymore. And I'm really thinking about ending my own life. And this was so shocking to me. This was a happy guy. This was a good guy. How could he possibly think about ending his life? Didn't he know how important he was to me and to so many others? And I cried and he cried and we truly mourned with those who mourned. We both sat there just crying and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. We talked for about another hour and a half sitting out in my car. And the next day I gathered up some of my friends there at the office and we talked about how we could better incorporate him in. And he and I continued to touch base and he kind of put together a plan for how he was going to stop with all the drinking and, and hopefully put a life together. And he did. And every time I talked to him later, uh, you know, he got happier and happier. And we still stay in touch, even though I'm, I'm at a different company. And, you know, these are short parts of our lives. He now has built out his own life there and has a lot of friends and, and a great support system. But in that time that he was lonely and low, Uh, He did not want to live anymore. And while I was sitting in the car, he told me he felt alone and insignificant, like no one knew who he was. I told him what had happened that night with the temple. And I told him in no uncertain terms that God had said, there's something more important than your work on the other side of the veil. And he's familiar with our church. He knew what temple work was. I said, tonight you are much more important than that other work. And God sent me here. And that's why I'm here. And he agreed. And I recommended that he go to church. And I recommended that he read the Book of Mormon, uh, with which he was very familiar. And, and that made him smile. And uh, But sure enough, he now seems to be doing great. All I know is that that night I was sent there for him. God has places for us to go. He has things for us to do. The question is, are we looking to be his angels? Are we opening up our hearts and minds and preparing ourselves so that we can go out and in some small way serve someone? Because it could be my friend, it could be Greg, and it may be me or one of my family members. And I'd sure be grateful if when someone I love really needs help, that you would be someone that would be there or that I would be someone that would be there for them. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in. We sure appreciate it. Hey, it's Thanksgiving week. What a wonderful week to be grateful. I'm so grateful for all of you and for all the feedback I get, the messages I get from you, and uh, that you continue to listen every single week. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, 
And remember, as always, (laughs) there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 